This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and with me, as always, is co-host Meredith Carey. Hi! And today we're joined by senior editor Catherine Legrave. Hello! And associate editor Andrea Whittle. Hi! And we're talking about a theme that I think we all love, which is Europe, and specifically our first trips to Europe. Our do's, our don'ts, our regrets, um, and everything we wish we'd known when we planned our first trips. And I will just say that when I told Andrea we were grabbing her for this podcast, she was like, uh, do you have to remember your first trip to Europe? Because I think I was an infant. I was an infant. And Lala also... You, I was an infant. Yeah. Well, also you, I was born, you were in born there. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was an infant, too. I moved to Germany when I was two. All right, cancel the podcast. <laughs> first trip to Asia. So, Meredith Carey, 16 years old, living it up in Europe. I will be the prime candidate, except maybe not so much. We'll see. Well, I think you are. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I went on this trip called People to People, uh, which is just like a bunch of teenagers who go all over Europe. We did like England, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. It was my first time out of the country ever. Love a teen tour. It was it was a real teen tour. Seriously. <laughs> it was it was <laughs> we went to Amsterdam. It was a real teen tour. It was great. Were you able to escape? Go off grid? No. I still am like a very much a rule follower. And when they were like, You person who's never been out of the country before have to be in your room at ten PM, I was like, I have to be in my room. At 10 p.m. You're like, actually, I have to be there at 9.55 because the clocks might be different. <laughs> well, That's you know, me, totally. But I feel like it was kind of perfect for me because, as I'm sure we'll end up talking about, it literally got in every single monument and landmark and important actual tourist attraction in all those four places so that never again in my life have I needed to say, you know what, I need to climb the Eiffel Tower now because I did it once, don't need to do it again. I made my mom when I was 10 climb the Eiffel Tower with me and she's really scared of heights. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. I was such a little tyrant as well. We'd go up to like the next level and she'd be like, I think we should stop. And I'd be like, no, we have to go to the top. <laughs> it was raining. I like your extra British child voice. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. That was horrible. So for those of you who did not go when you were of adult age, is there like a first trip that you distinctly remember my first trip alone yeah. as a teen, I was 14 years old, 
somehow I actually like looking back on this, I don't know how our parents thought this was a good idea because it actually actively was not. (laughs) But my three best friends and I went to a sailing camp in Sardinia. It's called Vela Mare. It's like where all the like Roman teens go (laughs) for sailing camp. And we basically just like ran completely wild in Sardinia, fully unsupervised with a bunch of Italian 15 to 18 year olds. (laughs) That was my first Europe experience. My mother dropped us off at the ferry block in Civitavecchia, which is like the Roman port, basically. And off we went. How was Would your not Ita- recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like very formative and amazing, but like, I don't think any American parent would like let their children do this. And I don't really know how mine did. <laughs> how was your Italian? Not great, but it got a lot better at the end of those two weeks. So we learned how to sail. We learned how to speak Italian. And... We learned a lot about partying, <laughs> so it was fine. It was good. I mean, it was crazy, but I guess, well, I don't know. Are we thinking like first trip if you're a teen or first trip if you're in college or first I mean, trip if you're in your 20s, I feel first like trip ever? For most people, you know, that first trip that you get to plan by yourself will come when you're in college age or maybe way later. So mm-hmm. to me, like the first trip to Europe should be the adult first trip to Europe because Mm -hmm. as much as I loved going when I was in high school I don't think I got nearly as much out of that as I did going back by myself or with friends much later in my life Mm -hmm. I think if you go in college and you're confident enough to use the train system like that's the way to do it it's like hit the major cities hit some of the smaller cities make use of the trains get a URL pass that's my I, mean, I agree. I mean, yeah. the trains, especially growing up in the UK, when you after you leave high school, like the thing to do is to get a URL pass and just like country hop for on the summer. On your gap year. On your gap year. <laughs> I didn't actually have one, but many do. Yeah, I mean, the train system's so efficient in Europe and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail, but it's a lot better than here in America. Oh, for sure. That's, no, so that's, that's like a hundred times. That's a fact. So that not is a true fact. Everything yeah. you've experienced on trains in America is not going to be what it's like when you go to Europe. And we actually had someone in our Facebook group, we had posed kind of like, what advice would you have given yourself when you took your first trip to Europe? And one woman, Judy, I like honestly kind of want to just read this whole thing out because it's 100% awesome. It says, I spent months planning my Eurail train trip around Europe. I was nervous. It was my first time I had ever traveled alone. And I had an itinerary an inch thick with alternate routes and places to see and like which stations had lockers and which ones didn't and how to exchange money in every country. And she packed all of her suitcases. And, you know, her friends dropped her off at the Barcelona train station and she was so worried and like guarded her luggage. And then after the first stop, she had to get off and train trains and then realized it was like so much easier than she ever had imagined before and literally like put her itinerary in the trash can. And then for the next two months, traveled um, through Spain and France and Denmark and Germany and Switzerland and Italy and then had an issue with a train strike and then just realized like, oh, I could just ask somebody because now I feel like you know, a pro, because once you've traveled that much by train, you're like, oh, I, you know, I can do anything. Ended up taking like a cruise ship back to Barcelona. I love the trains. But another thing that I loved doing um, when I was younger was the budget airlines, right? You think of budget airlines in the States and they have a bad rap and they're not amazing in Europe by any means, but they're significantly cheaper. And as we've talked about here um, on this podcast and I think other podcasts, like if you know how to play the game, any pack light, you can get really good deals flying to some of places that you maybe haven't considered before. So you can even have a, a more flexible itinerary, right? Like flying to a place that's a hub, like my parents lived by or lived by Frankfurt Hahn, which flies to every place. You could just go island hop 
just what I like to do. And I feel like honestly, between the trains and the cheap flights, because you can get a Ryanair flight. And again, you like have to go in with the right expectations. But if you, you know, pay $20, it's really a difference of time. Like, do you want the quick, fast, you know, go to the airport ahead of time, sit, get trundled onto a Ryanair flight, but have only paid $20? Or do you want like the leisurely five, six, 10, 24 hour train ride where you don't have to worry about going through security and it might just cost you the same amount? Mm. Depends. Exactly. <laughs> we can debate it. Well, you and know, also when you're yeah. on the train, you can see a lot of landscape and it changes so quickly when you're going through Europe. So if you get, you know, a train from, say, Paris to Milan, uh-huh. you know, you'll go through the Alps at one point. Like it's, I really hope I'm remembering this correctly. <laughs> no, you will. Otherwise, you totally will. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and there's beautiful trains in Switzerland that like kind of climb up the mountains. It's also, the train stations are all right in the middle of the city. So you can just walk there. And you don't have to, like, spend money on a cab to the airport and blah, blah, blah. It's so easy and, and if, so seamless. And if you get a Europass, you miss a train, you just get on the next one. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's so low pressure. You can change your plans. You have so much freedom. And it's a super easy, safe, pleasant, scenic way to get around. I think that's a really good lesson from what you're reading and what you just said, Lale, about, like, being flexible. And we've, again, also talked about this, right? Like, I'm a planner, but planning things to a point and saying, okay, this is the one big thing that I want to see in the city and sort of the rest of the day I'm going to leave open. It's just because Mm -hmm. you will find stuff that is unexpected and you might want to change your itinerary. There might be other stuff you see that you want to go back to or want to do. And I think that's hard for... You know, I grew up in Texas, so for me, going to any other major city, it was an endeavor. It's like four hours to mm-hmm. the next closest major city by car. We don't really have a train system that's <laughs> any sort of reliable. And flying, you're, you know, you're still paying like 150 bucks to get to the next place. So to think, like, I'm going to hit five, six countries. I can't even hit five, six states in the same amount of time. So I think there's this always... My concern as also a planner is to like over plan and over organize. Like I want to go to all of these cities and I want to have like this much, you know, 23 hours, 19 hours, 20 hours, all this stuff. And then you get there and you're like, wait, no, I want to stay here for four days. And the nice thing about trains is that like you have that flexibility to be able to decide I want to stay, I want to go, whatever. But I wonder what you guys have to say about first trip to Europe. Do you go to like all the big cities or do you go far outside? I think you pick your major bucket list, like gotta go, have been dreaming about it forever. You start there and then you see how much time, like if you have a week, you could easily hit two cities, maybe even three, or you could do one city and like a couple of smaller towns nearby. You could do, you know, go really deep on one city. But I think that it depends on how much time you have. I think if you have two weeks, you could hit four different cities. You could do like a full on train trip. But I think I would start with what calls you the most because you could get there and feel like you want to stay for, you know, seven nights. You could get there, feel like you've kind of seen it in three days and then hop on a train somewhere else. I mean, you can always check Norwegian too. So like if your dream is to go to like three different cities and you check norwegian.com and there's like $150 ticket to one of them. That's also a factor. So I think it's like, this is my hierarchy. (laughs) Bucket list, ticket price, how much time you have and who's coming with you. Cause maybe you're going alone. Maybe you're going with a significant other. Maybe you're going with a friend. Maybe you're going with family. And then you kind of have to like negotiate your itinerary and what you can actually do. I also think, and this is like not obviously possible for everybody, but if you have any kind of connection to a place, 
if it's your first time in Europe, if you know anybody in any place, so it's like maybe you have like a distant cousin or like a friend of your parents or someone you went to high school with or an exchange student or something, like just having some kind of contact on the ground or even if it's booking some kind of Airbnb experience where you like have, you know, someone local who can show you around, that makes such a difference. Um, You know, it just, you see a side of the city that you maybe wouldn't even think to look at and it's just fun. It's more fun that way. It's it's a tough tip because I don't you know. It's not like that accessible. I think but more I think, with Airbnb you can. Yeah, but. I mean, I think with experiences and even with if you if you're by yourself, this is an even better option. But booking a room in someone's home yeah. instead of a full home again gives you that experience of quote unquote living like a local, but actually doing that and not just like oh, this is my hotel, but it's an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't know if I'm going to sound like a complete ass when I say this, but. I felt like the first few times that I went to Paris, I never really got it. Mm-hmm. And I would always leave being like, this place is beautiful and magical. I get it. But I still don't really feel like I know it or that I've experienced it. And I still don't know where to eat. And I still don't know where to get a good drink. And I've walked around in the rain <laughs> like a bunch of times. Which I think is hard because I think most people think of Paris as the perfect, like uh, it is the starter yeah. city. Mm-hmm. And I don't think And I don't actually think it is. That's and it's true. totally yeah. impenetrable. Only, I think it was like the fourth time I went and I finally had a friend that was living there. It was like I was in a different city. I had a completely mm-hmm. different experience from where we hung out in the evenings to the people that we, we met to the neighborhood that I stayed. Like everything was different and it was so much better and... Yeah, like, obviously, firstly, it took me years before I had a friend that happened to be living in Paris. And it's all down to luck, who you know at the time. But I think just making any sort of connection to a place. And I also would say that maybe the first time you go to Europe, you don't have to go to Paris. I think that's such an important Mm -hmm. tip, right? I think there's such pressure that people feel about, especially about Europe, right? Because Europe, it's like, oh, you've gone to Europe. Everybody's gone to Europe. And if you go on your first trip, there's this pressure at least to me it seems like to do all of these things to see all of these cities to go to Paris so if it is like I don't want to go to Paris or Venice but I feel like I should you don't need to listen to Mm -hmm. that voice like just choose a trip that you want to do and do it and and sort of make it your own Europe I would say it'll always be there yeah because especially (laughs) like all those major places if you are going for the sort of like the tick the boxes off of your right. places I'm supposed to go, like it probably won't be that rewarding because a lot of these places are just mobbed with tourists, especially in the high season. So I would, instead of being like, I want to go see like this monument or this castle or this church or whatever, I would more go for like the type of cultural experience totally. that you want. It's almost like what I live here, like what sort of day to day do I want to have? It's less about like seeing the beautiful thing because like Europe is just literally anywhere you go, there will be like a beautiful historic church. Mm -hmm. There are like tiny villages in Italy with like priceless, you know, Renaissance frescoes like in a back room. Like, so I think that it's less about hitting those sites and more about where do you want to have lunch? Where do you want to have breakfast? You know, what type of place do you want to stay in? What do you want the neighborhood to look like? That, to me, should be more of the guiding principle because the other stuff is just going to happen anyway. And I think, Meredith, you've talked about this before in terms of planning your trips, which I think is a really good example to follow, which is giving yourself time to do nothing. It is truly... I went to London last October and I was there by myself and it was the nice thing about being by myself that there was one day where I literally just went and I got my nails done at a really fancy spa and then I sat in the bed in my hotel and watched Great British Bake Off and like ordered 
food. And I just sat there and like had a really lovely day where I didn't feel like I had to do anything. And it was really nice because after having, again, like packed so many things in the day before, I was exhausted. And you like have to give yourself that time, just like you would at home, to recharge that the next day you can, you know, hit the ground running or not, whatever you want to do. And when we actually, you know, earlier when I was saying that we post this question to the group, there was one woman, Melissa, who said that, you know, that first time that she went, she did that exact same thing. She like planned every single second and never even thought to schedule time for herself to eat at a local restaurant, have the time to find one or enjoy the scenery or talk to people. She just literally planned museum after museum after museum. And the next time that she went, she rented a car and literally just like, you know, drove around and stopped where she wanted to that looked cute and fun and met people and gave herself that like freedom to be able to explore that she realized that she had missed that first time, which I think is something that like is a little bit something you have to learn on your own. But if you take anything away from this podcast, don't make the mistakes that we've made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I have still never been to the Louvre, but I have been drunk locked inside a Paris metro station at 1 (laughs) a.m. I mean, but honestly, choose, kind of fun. More fun. <laughs> choose your adventure. Choose your adventure. Exactly. <laughs> Those are the moments, the times that I have been to Paris or London or, you know, major Lisbon. The times that I remember, even if I was by myself, are like moments rather than places. And I can, you know, if someone asks me, oh, where should I go? I can say, oh, well, like, go to this place and this place and this place because their experience will be totally different than mine and they can't, like, recreate being, you know, locked in a Paris uh, metro station. (laughs) But I think those are the things that make a trip are those moments that you super cannot plan, which is true of everywhere, not just Europe. But I think that's something to remember, especially when you're planning a trip to somewhere that can feel as daunting as the entire continent. And I think it's something to remind yourself when you're f- listening to that voice saying, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. Because really, you know, you can see the Eiffel Tower from all over Paris. You don't have to be underneath it. <laughs> and also, you've spent all this money. Mm-hmm. Like, if you spent yeah. all the money to get there, you should do what you want to do. I'll never get back the two hours I spent standing in the rain for the Musée d'Orsay. <laughs> It was terrible. Lale, tell us how you feel about Paris. <laughs> no, I love Paris. I love it so much. But there's uh, so hey, much and again, pressure if, on if it. you want to go to Paris the first time, go for it. I don't yeah. think that's what we're saying. It's just kind of like do what you want. Yeah. No, totally. Which is, you know, like good to plan an entire podcast around do what you want. <laughs> no, <laughs> do so what I you think want. Be prepared for the culture talk a yeah. little bit. All these different countries will react differently to someone who doesn't speak their language. Like in Paris, they will be notoriously snooty to you. Italy, they'll be a little warmer. Spain, more, you know, they're. it's like just depend. Like, I think you have to be prepared to like feel like an outsider, especially if you haven't spent that much time outside of the U.S. and sort of like roll with that discomfort because the more that you roll with it and embrace it, like the more fun you're going to have. Totally. And I think just like, yeah, being otherwise comfortable be in that. No, for sure. For sure. Are there any places that you guys think, you know, if someone wasn't dead set on a specific place would make a good spot to go to first. I mean, Lawrence. I'm biased, but London. London, <laughs> London Lolly has perfect. <laughs> the people are great. <laughs> and there isn't a language barrier, which but I also yeah. think is really barrier. nice. It's a very easy city to get around. It's a very expensive city, so mm. be prepared for that. But I think it is is a very good introduction to Europe. And... You can also, if you want, you can get the Eurostar and do a day trip to Paris. You could go and do a weekend in Amsterdam because there's a new route that goes there now. 
it is a lot of places are still very accessible from it so you could make it your base you know you could go up to scotland from there you could go via dublin there's lots of options it's also so international mm-hmm. yeah you know even coming from new york it's such a trip being in london because it's like you're just surrounded by so many different cultures and so much going on and like it feels like you're getting like more bang for your buck <laughs> but you then know? on the flip side walk down Oxford street and all the same shops that's true that you have <laughs> in the states will be there which then um which i feel like we touched on a little while ago is that does it make sense to just ditch the big cities and go somewhere more remote I found out today, get my data out. <laughs> I found out today that in Croatia, it has a population of 4,170,000 Croatians, residents of Croatia, compared to the annual 57,587,000 tourists that go there every year. But okay, but here's the thing. So Catherine, you could probably speak to this because you went there for your honeymoon, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... I think that. Yup. Sure did. No, but I mean, I think that you know you can you can speak to the fact that a lot of those people just go to Dubrovnik. Totally. So when you go outside, you feel like you aren't in the mass of humans who are trying to take the Game of Thrones tour. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like what Andrea said earlier: making a city your base and then going to smaller places. We did like a whole road trip around Croatia and we knew that we wanted to see some of those big cities, right? Dubrovnik split. But the most fun we had was like going to these remote islands and doing a road trip through the center of Croatia, right? But it's it's all kind of what you enjoy. You might enjoy those bigger cities, but I liked a mix of that, doing both. I I mean, I guess Croatia is a good first trip. I think it depends on what again, whatever you want to do. <laughs> no, I mean like if you if you could go back and pick for yourself a first city, what would you have done ideally as an adult? Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Actually, one of my first trips was to the very expensive Oslo, um which I actually would really recommend Scandinavia just because very the people are very friendly, the language barrier like someone Everyone made a joke. English. Exactly. Perfect Everyone speaks English. English because as someone said to me one time, like who else in the world speaks Norwegian? Except for, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, so they all learn English from a very young age. If that's a concern of yours, the cities are cosmopolitan, very accessible, really good public transportation. And again, wonderful train and plane system for you to get out and explore the country. So I would actually, I'm going to go with Oslo. I'm going to stick mm. with that. Andrea, what do you think? Okay, I'm slightly split. I have two options. Both of them are for sort of the same reasons. Amsterdam and Florence. Because they're kind of cozy and they have a little bit of everything. So they're small enough that you can kind of get the lay of the land in a couple of days. You don't feel like you're being thrown into this like major metropolis, which can be a little spooky if you don't speak the language. Both of them are going to be filled with enough English speakers that you can kind of like bop your way around. And they also... They're like young, interesting cities. They have a lot of young people. Florence has a huge student population. There's a lot of like study abroad programs from the U.S. that have campuses there. So there's a big like young international student thing. And they also have this like major art legacy. So if you're going to Europe, I mean, I think part of the reason that we're all fascinated by these cities is because of the incredible history 
and the art that has been created here. So like both in Amsterdam and in Florence, you have like this young, cool thing going on and funky boutiques and really cute restaurants and cool cafes. But then you have these like incredible, incredible museums and gorgeous historic architecture. So you can kind of get like a little taste of all the things that you would want to go to Europe for without feeling like you're sort of beholden to doing these like major things like seeing Big Ben or seeing the Eiffel Tower or seeing the Coliseum. It's like they feel like real places, mm. which I think are nice. My pick is actually Florence. It was my first solo trip outside of the US and it was probably the best place to be by myself because there were so many shops that I could go into and talk to people mm-hmm. who mostly were confused as to why I was alone. <laughs> um, no, but there, I you know, I could like go out to Luca, I could, you know, take the train which is so easy in Italy and go kind of wherever I wanted and make Florence which is super walkable my home base, the mm-hmm. same thing. And I also just found yeah, people were so friendly and there were enough landmarks that I felt like I could like see, quote unquote, see like, you know, the Florence that people want to tick off. Mm-hmm. But there weren't so many that I felt like I needed to do that with all of my time. Like I could spend days at a time just wandering around. And that's my favorite part of traveling. Mm-hmm. So Florence yeah, they're was... They're very pleasant walking cities. Exactly. And I think really that nice. especially when you are trying to figure it out, not having to worry about getting a car or figuring out public transportation even is kind of a little blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. That's another reason why I said about Croatia, because that's like figuring out what kind of stresses you want to bring into your trip, right? If you're if you're going to go to Croatia, that is a place where you need a car unless you're really only going to go to one city. So for me on my first trip, that would have probably been stressful if that was like my first trip to Europe, trying to get used to all the different things and also throwing like new driving rules into the mix would have been stressful for me. But it's ter- I, would never, I would never tell someone to rent a car in yeah. Italy, ever, ever. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah, listen to our last podcast. It's my <laughs> personal nightmare. Same, same, same for Turkey. It's no scary. one should ever drive in Istanbul. Just, it's people just, don't, it's like, it would be like driving on a different planet. It's like a whole <laughs> different set of rules and everyone's so aggressive and it's terrifying. I, I was once in a taxi in Istanbul on one of the main sort of highway roads that go along the Bosphorus and my cab driver got into what could only be described as a fast and the furious race in which him <laughs> and this like rival car that appeared out of nowhere, they started revving their engines at the lights and then suddenly we were off. Oh my God. <laughs> Amy Winehouse was blasting through. Did the you win? Because we did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. And then he overcharged me. So. <laughs> Unbelievable. So yeah, I would never drive in Turkey. It's absolutely <laughs> insane. Actually, speaking of Turkey, because I feel like that you know, is a perfect example when you think of Istanbul and Paris as such sort of, diff- you know, in many ways similar, but very contrasting different cities. And it, you know, shows how diverse the continent is as you travel through it. And I was wondering, I mean, obviously you don't want to typecast any country. It's a huge continent. But, um, you know, traveling as a woman obviously varies where you are around the world. And um, I was wondering if any of you had, you know, experiences or you know, advice on what listeners should do when they're traveling on their own throughout Europe as they go through different cultures. I mean, I think that, you know, what Andrea was saying about being prepared for culture shock and that the fact that, you know, even though all of these countries are so close together, they are so different. So being prepared if you are hitting a bunch of places to know that like France and Spain, even though they're next door neighbors, are not the same country and they're not going to be culturally as similar as you would expect, like 
Tennessee and Kentucky to be. <laughs> um, no, but I think that like that preparation and just like actually understanding kind of what makes Europe Europe mm-hmm. is the fact that it is so diverse and different is a really important mental process to go through that I think is true, you know, regardless of whether you're a woman or not. But I think that that for me was definitely an important thing to realize as someone who is used to an international but also like American homogeneous mm-hmm. country. I would be prepared for a slightly less enlightened approach to feminism in various countries in Europe. I think that there's like a big macho thing and that like you will hear men say things about women to you or about women in general or (laughs) about you that I think can be like a little bit shocking if you come from a sort of liberal, you know, feminist, enlightened part of the U.S. And that's like you're used to talking about women as equals. Like you may encounter men who straight up don't think that way. And it's weird. Which or you do in America, but well, you they do just in sort of hide too. it a bit more. <laughs> yeah, but they're like really out, like they are just out there yeah. with it. Like it's in Italy and Spain, I have experienced this personally many times. And in France, actually, to various degrees. Some of it just funny, laugh it off. And some of it like actually left the dinner table to like go cry. Uh. But I don't know. I think you just have to be a little bit prepared. Like you'll hear people say things that you would be like shocked. I agree. To hear in the U.S. When I when I moved to Greece and I was like in the small town and I would walk to work and I remember my first few days and like a police car one time came by me and said something. I was like, wait till I find out who I am. I'm the new teacher here. Wait till they know. <laughs> and then I was telling people and they were like, it's just that happens all the time. What's what's the problem? They're just giving you a compliment. I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> um, so that's a very good tip. I would say if you. If you're traveling alone and you get tired of being alone, like one of the things I found um, was like exploring tours, even free tours, as mm-hmm. a, or as a nice way to meet people and sort of dip in and out of being with people for a certain amount of time, you know, or staying at hostels or places where there are social rooms um, and sort of talking to people that way. Because I, I found that it was a nice mix of being able to like go out on my own and also meeting people that you can do stuff with if you want to, but you're not forever tied to like you are to a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I have lots of friends, I promise. (laughs) Who needs long-standing relationships? Who needs those things? Just parachute into a tour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, and I think something that you've said before, Lale, which is talking to locals and actually getting a sense of like what that country is like and what you need to expect I think is again important for that like mental adjustment for culture shock just to like prepare yourself and especially for safety I think that's so important because I think you know we report on the State Department warnings um, which usually are about terrorism and safety and I think those can sometimes get a little scary if you're planning a trip and you know suddenly there is a you know orange or numbered warning And I think that, you know, talking to someone on the ground and talking to other women in our Women Who Travel group has been really helpful to kind of adjust that expectation to something that's like definitely more realistic uh, than anything you might read on the U.S. news about that place. I I absolutely agree. And, you know, I think when you just, you know, last year was a horrible year for news stories about terrorism attacks around Europe. But I think you also, I don't know, these times we live in, it's like bloody exhausting. And every time I read the news, I feel like everything's going to explode. Um, but, you know, when people were saying they were changing their plans to go to London or they, you know, they were scared to go to London now, it was like, well, I'm going home for Christmas. 
And I spoke to my parents and everything's plodding along as usual. So I think it is, you know, speaking to locals on the ground and keeping a little bit of perspective about everything. Super important, for sure. And I mean, you cover, Catherine, you cover these State Department's listings all the time. So what is the validity of them and how much power should you put in them and also like what service are they actually intended to provide for like the ordinary traveler like are they actually telling someone to not go there is it that we're just supposed to keep you know make note of it and carry on on our way Mm. so the system is now one through four every country has a one through four even within we saw this with mexico certain regions have a level four which is do not travel but mexico as a whole has a two which is like exercise increased caution, which I think Paris has, you know, so it's putting it in perspective, like Meredith said, looking at a place and you might see, oh, it has a level two, which is the second highest, but really most places in the world are kind of, or let's say most places in Europe are like that at this moment, just because of sort of the times we live in, right? Just exercise increased caution when you travel. I don't think that's bad advice. So that's kind of it. There's a level four, you're not going there. I mean, this is like North Korea, Syria. Um, Level three is reconsider travel. And the practical service of these really is in the three and four. And again, those are places you're probably not going because what it means is that the State Department is pulling their resources sort of from the country so you wouldn't have any help if you were there. That's kind of the service. No, and I think that, you know, that's just another one of those things to take into consideration. But again, I think that just like you shouldn't, necessarily give all of the power to that voice in your head that's saying, oh, you've got to go to this place. Sure. I think just something that comes from us working in this office and always wanting to promote travel, I think you should just really do your research if you are concerned and not base it off of one single thing that has been put out into the world. Totally. And like this applies to travel and life in general, but, you know, educating yourself usually makes you less scared of things. Is mm-hmm. Are there any books... Speaking of education, that you think you should read before your first trip to Europe. But there is a rule, and they have to be written by women. Elena Ferrante. <sighs> no, that was going to be mine. Yeah, no, that's a good one. <laughs> I Wait, think that that I was just... <laughs> Remember when a man decided to come up with a theory that Elena Ferrante was, was a, a man. man? Yeah. Um, no, but I think those books kind of are, one, you know, have a lot to do with travel, and two, just, again, like, give you that snapshot into a life that isn't yours um which Portrait is of a lady right exactly yeah, henry there you go. <laughs> not written She's by like, women <laughs> read henry james <laughs> i mean it's a europe book yeah jane it's about austin. a woman who travels jane austen <laughs> virginia yeah. wolf to the lighthouse whenever they traveled they got the flu and had to go home <laughs> actually we should do like a deep dive podcast about uh portrait of a lady That'd be a fascinating look. We yeah, could do, what if we planned an itinerary around Portrait of a Lady? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. 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 Catherine, what about yours? Oh, uh, mine was a Norwegian, oh gosh, uh, short stories. I'm going to butcher this. Sorry, every Norwegian out there. Gunhild Oyag. <laughs> I just everyone's laughing at me but they're not laughing into their mics well so, no I was waiting for there to be another syllable no <laughs> that's it <laughs> that's my best Norwegian um, and it's a collection of short stories called Knots so she's one of Norway's um, most prolific poets and, and writers and she's really cool and it's just this collection of short stories that talks about daily life I like it Andrea do you have any picks? 
I'm going to stick with Portrait of a Lady, honestly, because she goes from England and then, like, travels the entire continent and has, like, an epic adventure and many suitors and husbands and deaths. It's fascinating. (laughs) Actually, the last time I read the beginning of it, I didn't end up finishing it the last time I read it. I found a copy of it in Rome and then I left it in Venice. (laughs) Actually, you know what you should read is Italo Calvino, all of his books. Especially women. if you're going to Italy. Sorry. Andrea. Yeah, you're like, Henry James, he wrote about women. <laughs> yeah, so every, that counts. I'm like, men from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should read. Okay, wait. I'm going to come up with something. Bali, will you <laughs> take over from Andrea's <laughs> choices? Okay, I have a few. Um, if you're going to Athens, I think you should read Outline by Rachel Cusk, um, oh, who is a... Brilliant. I I love her. She's a brilliant writer. Um, It's the first in a trilogy. Um, The third is coming out now. And Outline is about a writer traveling in Greece um, based in Athens for the space of a week. And I read it just before I actually went to Athens last summer. And I was amazed at how well she actually managed to capture very small little details about the city. And she's British. Um, And then two Turkish writers, both called Elif, Elif Shafak, who is a pretty prolific female writer in Turkey. Um, Many people love her. Some people hate her. I love her. And she writes really magical stories about Turkey. And The Architect's Apprentice, if you're going to Istanbul for the first time, I think is the best book to read on that 10-hour flight because it is set like way, way back in Ottoman times. And you kind of learn, I mean, it's fiction, but you learn how Istanbul was a lot of it was built and it, it it's so magical and it makes like that whole city come alive. It's such an old city and it really like captures your imagination. And then Elif Batman, who wrote The Idiot, which is, she's Turkish American and she, it's sort of semi-based on herself, I think. And it's about a college student doing a summer abroad in Hungary and it is hilarious and self-deprecating and I think actually really captures sort of traveling in Europe on your own for maybe the first time very well. She it's makes so lot, good. It's, it's so, so good. good. It was I, my favorite book of last year. Yes. And um, Elif, if you ever, either Elif, if you ever want to come on the podcast, let us know. Plug, plug, plug. And we forgot. I forgot. Sorry, Andrea, were you going to go? I forgot I another one. one. I no, I hope out. it's the same person. I'm going to say because I'm going to beat you. Mm. Zadie Smith. It's not. White teeth. Yeah. Read it. London. Go ahead. It's, it's true. You should <laughs> read all of her books, but yeah, yeah, white yeah, teeth. yeah. Definitely white teeth. Uh, Rachel Kushner, The Flamethrowers, which is about so good, right? So good. So good. <laughs> so good. No one can see what you're doing I to each other. We're like all pointing at each other really emphatically across the table, <laughs> like silently, like throttling the air. Um, Rachel Kushner, Flamethrowers, is about this woman who's an artist in the 70s in New York but then she starts dating this like Italian guy who is from this like big industrial family in Italy and it's all about sort of like the art world and the way it intersected in Italy and then this really weird so Italy in the 70s was like horrifically violent and there were all these protests and people getting kidnapped and shot and it's a whole thing it's fascinating it's beautifully beautifully written I am also in the middle of her latest book The Mars Room but I don't know. It's sort of like people think of Italy as like beautiful Italy, like monuments and golden light, blah, blah, blah. But this is a sort of portrait of a time in its history um, that I think a lot of Americans maybe aren't that familiar with. And it's sort of a fascinating look if you're going at like a pretty significant moment 
in the past hundred years. Amazing. But what about portrait of a lady? <laughs> I mean, also portrait of a lady. <laughs> Another portrait. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Well, I think that's the perfect uh, place to stop. So thank you guys so much for joining. Lale and I are now horribly late to go to our very first Women Who Travel meetup. If you are not in the Facebook group, join because at some point in the future, we would love to see you in person. If you would like to see our faces ever uh, and not just hear our voices, um, definitely join so that you can also attend. We're having our first run in New York. Who knows where we'll go next? You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hanna. Andrea. A little bit. And Catherine. KJ LeGrave. Amazing. You can read so many things from all of these ladies at seeandtraveler.com and find everything that we do at seeandtraveler on Instagram and Twitter. Have a great week. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual. But the Life Kit Podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.